It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. This week, my guest is Zach Eswine. Zach is the lead pastor of Riverside Church in Webster Groves, Missouri. He is also the author of several books, including Imperfect Pastor, Discovering Joy in Our Limitations. That book was recently awarded the prize as the Book of the Year in Pastoral Ministry by Christianity Today. Zach espouses from the pulpit a sort of radical humility, and he tries to live that out in his ministry. He was a rising star in the evangelical world, and his ministry and his life didn't turn out exactly the way he expected. And through the sort of chastening that he experienced, he discovered a beauty and a joy that he feels he wouldn't have been able to find otherwise. He's a fascinating man. This is one of the most interesting interviews that we've had yet, and I'm delighted to bring it to you. I learned from Zach via a listener who suggested that he would make a good interview, and I rely upon you to point me toward interesting preachers, so please do be in touch, preachers at christiancentury.org. For now, here he is, Reverend Dr. Zach Eswine. Welcome to Preachers on Preaching. So glad you're with us. And I want to start off by just leaping right into your latest book, Imperfect Pastor, which I've really been enjoying, and and just ask you a question about uh, a passage from that, which I'll read. Early in the book, you say this, that when you were starting out, you were asked or told, you're among the finest preachers I've heard, and you're so young. I can't wait to hear you in 10 years. Well... Ten years have long since passed, and I've not become what was once projected. So, what happened? Well, that's a great question, Matt. Uh, I think I think what happened involves my own heart, and it involves the cultural assumptions around me. You know, my own my own heart was just uh, trying to live up to that in all earnestness. You know, if God has gifted me in a certain way, then I want to go all out for Him and try to be all I can be and uh, and live up to whatever whatever those expectations were. I think the cultural assumptions behind that, as I look back at it now, are so deadly, really. I can't wait to see you in 10 years was an earnest comment from an older gentleman, but uh, it's filled with sort of a celebrity, upwardly mobile mindset, really, that somehow uh, to achieve greatness, uh, I wasn't I wasn't presently doing it. I would have to be 10 years from now, and it would have to be something more than I am, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I just bought into all that with all my heart, um, and I just crashed. You know, those assumptions can't sustain a soul or a ministry or a family, and and uh, that was certainly true of my life. So did the assumptions being that, like, who you were when you were just starting out was a local church pastor immersed in a local congregation. And what this kindly gentleman was projecting for you was you've got, you've clearly got gifts. Those gifts are going to be capitalized upon and you will become like you'll, you'll steeple climb. You'll become a more prominent person in the culture. You'll have larger and larger churches and a bigger following. Is that, those are the assumptions, right? Yeah. So like, uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll climb the ladder and uh, eventually become 
whatever it is I, I will become for God and, you know, for our generation. And then greatness is defined as bigger. Yes. More prominent. Um, do you think that that temptation toward not cultural relevance, but larger audiences, does that feel to you at all as an evangelical because of the relative health of the evangelical church, it's more of a possibility in evangelical worlds, I think, than it is in the mainline liberal church. Do you think that that's more of a temptation within evangelicalism, or do you see it across the board for Protestant Christians? Well, that's a great question. I don't know if I can uh, speak to it uh, more, much more broadly, but I certainly know within evangelicalism, it's a deadly temptation. Uh, and I suppose for any any pastor that wants to make a difference, and uh, uh, we're, we're as an American, you know, we're steeped in this idea of doing large things famously as fast as possible, and. When the problem is, is that, or the uh, the beauty is that most things that matter in life require small, mostly overlooked actions over a long period of time, and certainly local pastoral work requires a skill and a capacity, a humility, a persevering capacity for small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time, and so uh, that mindset is. <laughs> Um, not core to American evangelicalism. It's certainly core to evangelicalism in other parts of the world where, uh, you know, you just labor for a long time and a large church is 40 people. Uh, But, um, yeah, it's a deadly... A deadly temptation for us. I think Eugene Peterson actually talked about crowds as uh, as poisonous or as deadly or any other any of the other temptations we might think of having as a pastor. I think that's true. I think it's interesting from the from the mainline perspective, or at least from from my mainline perspective. I often think it's really too bad that we don't have more of an evangelical impulse that we're content to say to someone or assume, you know, I have a lot of atheist or agnostic friends here in Chicago and, and I hear them say, you know, I have a spiritual moment or what they understand as one when I walk along the shore of Lake Michigan. And the, the stereotypical liberal response to that, liberal Christian response is to say, that's great. You know, you have your thing and I have mine. I have my connection to God through Jesus, but far be it from me to talk about that with you, right? And so I feel like that's contributed massively to the decline of the main line, our, our liberalism in terms of practicing a tolerance around the increasing agnosticism of the culture. So I beat myself up internally for that, but it's interesting to hear your experience, which is, has ecclesiastically an impulse toward reaching other people going out, right? But that that impulse toward evangelizing can also easily be corrupted and misdirected too, or used for the wrong ends. That's a really good point. And I, perhaps what it is to be more uh, to the point then it would be, you know, that, that atheist friend, a neighbor who talks about the spiritual moment on the beach, that's who I hope we're, we're reaching, you know, that, that's where the evangelical impulse I, is meant to go toward, to, to, to start right there and say, yeah, I mean, isn't, what is it about the, the world that is beautiful and speaks to our souls, you know, and I, and I want to start there. I think what gets in the, 
what what can get in the way frankly is folks who are already already evangelical christians uh who are com- who have been a part of other churches and then they come to your church and so sometimes our churches grow not by how we'd say conversion to christ but by you know transfer of preferences mm. and perhaps that's what i'm getting at i the, pre, the the kind of the kind of crowd that comes from a transfer of preference, uh, a consumer mindset. That's the one that's that's deadly. As you've slowed down um, and are trying to slow your church growth down, and are have moved your own perspective as you've matured from what was projected onto you as a young pastor into who you are now with an emphasis on the local and the gritty and the the lived reality of a community and, and the call of a pastor to be, you know, to, to use your gifts with the people that you're called to be with right here, right now. How has that affected your preaching? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think, you know, one practical way, for example, it's affecting preaching is I'll just talk about this stuff. So uh, we call it the Riverside Detox. You know, if, if folks are really happy to be here for about six months, it feels refreshing. They feel encouraged. And six, seven, eighth month, they hit an, an irritation level because there's no big thing we're asking them to do. We keep we keep saying the big thing is to take a small step of grace. You know, know the name of your neighbor. You know, that's the big, hairy idea we have. And so folks don't know what to do with that kind of space uh, in their life. And so it's a detox point. So part of preaching is just naming that, uh, setting, seeking to point to Jesus and how he talks about these kinds of things. Um, Small, mostly overlooked over a long period of time values. But I think also the other thing is, particularly as as an evangelical, I suppose, in America, is I... I, I want to communicate with that uh, friend who's an atheist at the beach that you were talking about and uh, the person who has real cynicisms and skepticisms. Um, and I want those an environment in which those folks can be here. And so uh, and so and, and that I'm the same person in the pulpit that I am that they experience down here at the at the boardwalk cafe, you know, and I I don't want to have a preacher voice. I I want to be the same guy. And so you say elsewhere in the book, here's another quote from the book. I find myself asking God on Sunday mornings, Lord, please deliver me from praying and preaching in some kind of preacher voice today. Let me speak in the voice I use when I cry to you and no one else is around. Um, So in terms of like your persona in the pulpit or the... I was talking to Otis Moss in one of these interviews here in Chicago, and he said, you know, we're always performing, um, and we can't forget that the pulpit is a place of performance. Um, I don't want to set you up in an argument with Otis here, but <laughs> but what I hear you saying here is, oh, this is, you know, it's a different emphasis here. Like, you want to be, at least you want to, what, perform authenticity? Like, how do you gear yourself up for being your raw, plain self in the pulpit. Yeah, I make a joke that we, we practice authenticity. You know, but, <laughs> uh, you know what I think is driving it, uh, a, a driving this desire in me is to think about preaching as testimony. And so I think that, and to think about preaching as martyring, to know that if I was a, a Christian pastor in Iraq right now, it would just 
it would dramatically change the way I view it. It would it would have much more of a testimonial aspect to it that I'm a human being uh, who and and that's because uh, we a um, couple things. One, we do what very few other people have to do. We stand up in a public place week upon week and declare where we stand. Well, that takes a lot of courage as a human being, and it, it invites you and opens you up to all kinds of things. So if I'm going to get criticized, as I'm getting older, I'm thinking I might as well get criticized for what I actually believe, you know, or actually say. And the other thing is um, the the New Testament preachers and the Old Testament preachers to me are testifying uh, at, at, as a part of their stewardship, as a part of their ambassadorship. They're, they're, they're personal human beings testifying to their own personal you know, faith. Uh, and I, I want that to come across. I want to find my way toward that. So it's not only authenticity, because sometimes you're going to, I assume, step into the pulpit and be authentically distracted authentically yes, tired of the sound of your own voice even authentically tired of looking at these people so there's a combination of 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 authenticism but also of 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 urgency right and not of manufacturing urgency but of of being reminded and reminding yourself of the importance of what's happening the stakes that exist, if not for you in this moment, for others somewhere else. Yes. So there's, it, it reminds me a little bit of sort of, uh, I don't know, I was at my daughter's fifth grade basketball game earlier in the week and watching those girls learn how to get themselves fired up for a basketball game. Now, you know, you see seasoned athletes, they know how to do that, but it's a learned thing. Kids have to teach themselves or be taught um, by their coaches, right? This is different from practice. This is different. And they, they, I was, it was interesting to see them sort of learning how to get fired up. So what I hear you saying is, again, you want to be yourself, but you want to be yourself um, under this certain... I don't know what pressure ob- set of obligations. Yeah, yeah. There's a there is a performance to it in the sense of what leadership requires. And so that's different than you know using the pulpit as my personal therapy place. You know, and um, I, I can't do that and be a faithful leader to other people. I wanted to ask you a. a, a kind of classic evangelical versus mainline (laughs) contrast question around preaching, especially Um, when you think about the authority of scripture, when you're explicating a passage, what are the assumptions that you bring um, to that? Like, what do you think you're doing when you preach on a given pericope? That's, that's a thoughtful question. I, um, and I, and I, I probably would, I know that I would answer that question differently now than I would have 20 years ago. What I think I'm doing is, uh, as a human being, a creature created with dignity and love personally by God, I am pointing to words that he's spoken and setting them in front of people as best as I can, as, as faithfully, as plainly, as without exaggeration, without minimizing what's there, setting that in front of people in a Christ-centered way so that they can they can follow Jesus, they can be on the road with him uh, and walk with him. And so 
I, and by pointing to the words on the page, um, I don't believe that they're magical. You know, there's they were printed. I bought it for fifteen ninety nine. You know, uh, on sale. Um, I, but I believe that uh, by the Spirit of God, uh, He uh, makes so makes His word live. And uh, so I try to point to it and and then stand with people and look at it together and wrestle with what it says, just like we would if we were walking on, on the road with Jesus, wrestle with what he's saying. Is it part of that wrestling, pushing back against it? Yes. Uh, yes. Um, I'm so thankful for passages in the New Testament that, um, you know, like here's one, um, the Great Commission. You know, evangelicals, we talk about the Great Commission a lot. Uh, but right right there in the heart of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, it says that when Jesus appeared to those disciples that um, some doubted. <laughs> and uh, I love that. Yeah. And I love that um, that's written there. And so many places are written like that in the Scriptures for us. That, and, and those are the guys being sent out uh, to proclaim and teach and baptize in, I'd like to know who it was who, who doubted. Was it was it Peter? Was it just Thomas? Was it who was it? Um, but the idea that we can look right at the resurrected Jesus and not know what we're looking at, yeah. confounded by it, and so to be able to to and maybe that's a part of the authenticity and the human testimony element too is that I don't want to pretend that away when I'm preaching. And I know some of my evangelical colleagues would differ with me on that, but I, I think we set that right in front of folks because uh, my uh, Christian evangelical friends have doubts and cynicisms in their heart. Uh, certainly my other than Christian neighbors do. And so let's just be honest about that, recognize it, especially when it's there in the text, and just set it in front of us. And, um, you know, that's different than uh, solving, solving something every Sunday and it's different than feeling like I'm an expert. And sometimes that's unsettling for evangelical folks. Um, but that's how I'm approaching it. That's really interesting. I think sometimes in the mainline, we can get, you know, we, we I was trained at least to read the Bible through a historical critical lens. And if there are passages that don't jibe with cultural values that I'm really steeped in and hold fast to, that a part of what my job to do as a preacher is to dismantle those passages, right? To take a look at, you know, why is, why does Paul come across as such a homophobe, for instance? Well, you know, here's, here's, here's the various ways and the techniques I've got to, to take the teeth out of that. Or, um, and I, you know, for what, what it's worth, Personally, I passionately believe that that's what I ought to be doing. My congregation is is comprised of a significant um, GLBT population, and I need to do that because these folks, many of them, although this is changing as time goes by, but many of them have just, you know, had the wind knocked out of their sails, been beaten down by the church. Um, but there's another way in which the mainline can then look at like miracle stories, right? And say, let's, 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 let's be real. This didn't happen. Um, let's look instead toward the things that Jesus might've actually said, instead of concentrating on what God's trying to say to us, um, when Jesus turns water into wine. 
dismantling the, the, the harmful things in scripture that are destructive to people's relationship with God can be salvific. You know what I mean? It can help yeah. salvation happen anyhow. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, those exact same methods can really be limiting and can denude the gospel of its power. Um, I don't know. I'm curious kind of <laughs> there's yeah, my tortured case. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I, I'm thinking, okay, probably the way I would say it is, um, let's see, I think I heard you say dismantling the harmful things in Scripture. And I would probably say dismantling our uh, mistaken notions of what we're reading there mm. um, as an evangelical and then, uh, but I want to do the same, th- you know, the same thing. And then uh, I'll, I'll give an example with this very tender and sensitive uh, human uh, reality that you're raising about sexuality. You know, uh, so if I'm if I'm preaching from the Apostle Paul, uh, I will acknowledge in the pulpit that uh, th- hearing from him is hard. I, I know some of you here. This is hard to hear him, um, and I and I I can't remove that. Um, we're, we're, we're trying to take Paul as he is, you know, we, he's a, he's a Jewish guy in the first century. And what would it mean to love my neighbor? That's got to include this guy, the apostle Paul. So how do I take him at face value and not make him what I want to be more or less than he is? And I'm inviting you to consider that with me over a long period of time. We're not going to solve that today. Mm. You know, the other thing I'll try to do is say, uh, and let's remember the complexity of this guy. Uh, he's the same guy that wrote what what many people who are other than Christian would agree is is the best, most beautiful description of love in in Western history. Uh, love is patient. Love is kind. You know, and how how is that possible? You know that the homophobe writes so fully about love like that, and uh, and so let's let's let's. Let's enter the complexity of him like we would any human being. Instead of just writing him off as a first century bigot. Yes. And as an evangelical, uh, and, and not just writing off the concerns or the, the, the ghosts, the, the wounds that people have when they read those words in our century. Um, and so trying to enter the complexity of it. So here's an example. And I and in this example, I have to say not... Not, not all of my evangelical colleagues would, would agree with what I'm about to say. So, But when, when the Supreme Court uh, decided, as it did, on the same-sex marriage question, at the church that I serve, we had folks who were celebrating that decision, and we also had folks who were frightened by it and thought this is one more indication of the decline of our culture. And, uh, and so that Sunday, I'm preaching, you know. How do I how do I preach to uh, people who are celebrating that decision, people who are frightened by that decision, and they're all in the same congregation, trying to grapple with Jesus? So uh, for me, it was five statements from Jesus, and uh, and saying to everyone, if if we look to Jesus today, we're all going to be offended, I believe, and. Uh, and so let's just look at the, these things Jesus says, and uh, let's realize that uh, some of us who are celebrating will see reason to celebrate, and will also be confronted by Jesus. And some of us today who are frightened may see reasons to be frightened, but we're also being confronted by Jesus. And we won't solve this issue in 35 minutes. So here we go. And I'll say, everybody ready? Let's hold hands, as it were. You ready? 
And, uh, and so we just look at these statements from Jesus. I just try to, without a lot of commentary, just point to what it is and say... What were they? What statements of Jesus did you lift up? Over the next year and a half, let's two years, let's just keep doing life and follow him in these statements. Mm. Well, the, the so, so it wasn't right yeah. now, here are the five definitive statements of Jesus that will clarify all mystery. And oh. It was an invitation into a longer, yes. slower relationship. Yes, and so an evangelical colleague who listened to that online, he called me and he said, I think that was a great message, but there's no way I could preach that in my church mm. and uh, Southern evangelical context. And um, uh, because it sounds like I'm not authoritative or definitive, it sounds like I'm, uh, but really I, what I believe is um, I don't think we solve everything in a minute, uh, immediate gratification or immediate solving. I think we grapple with Jesus on this. So the five statements, I was afraid you might ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. So the very first thing, right, is love your neighbor as yourself, including your enemy. So regardless of what position we're at, uh, we're going to be called to love our neighbor. And um, and, and, and in an evangelical circle, we have to say, and what, what, what did Jesus mean by love? Like we have to import that word with everything that he meant by it. So that's more than saying my pleasure at a restaurant and, and being nice and smiling. Um, it's actual love, patience, kindness, self-control, you know, other-centered, uh, esteeming others better than ourselves. Um, all the things that the robust reality of love that Jesus set in front of us. So that's going to challenge all of us uh, because those who are celebrating are going to have to have that definition of love for those who are frightened. And those who are frightened are going to have to have that definition of love for those who are celebrating. And that, I, that we could stop right there and we're all humbled, I believe. And it's so easy to get convinced that our country is divided very neatly between people who think in an absolutist way on one side of a question or an absolutist way on the other side. And so to hear the story of, for me, as a northern liberal, lifelong liberal Protestant, to hear your story of, you know, an evangelical church in Missouri that is saying, this is not something that we're all going to take to the streets and, you know, rip our clothes over. We're going to sit with Jesus and really think it through and, and right, struggle and, and, and try to, I don't know, be Christian. Yeah. Well, we have to have that here in uh, in Webster Grove. I mean, anywhere. But Webster Groves, where I'm at, is an uh, an unusually large uh, population of friends and neighbors who are LGBTQ, as they would say here. Uh, St. Louis was voted one of the gayest cities in America by the Advocate. Um, our my I can't afford to sort of as an evangelical to skip over my local world and just read the blogs that I of my party, if you will, and yeah. sort of overlook my own neighbor right in front of me and just talk in the blogosphere about this issue. Um, it just, my, each of my friends, my, my, my kids have been impacted wonderfully by um, uh, gay uh, and lesbian teachers. Um, I coach YMCA basketball with um, kids who have les uh, lesbian mothers. Uh, I, what does it look like for me to be a follower of Jesus in that? And so I'm going to have to love my neighbor. Uh, and the other, the other, one of the other statements was Jesus just isn't as sexualized as we are. Um, he just isn't. He just doesn't talk about it the way we do. And um, and uh, 
and and when he does, um, this is a tender thing to say. He he doesn't seem to feel that celibacy, uh, a celibate way of life, is a uh, it, 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 uh, that we're going to miss out on a good life if we're celibate. Uh, and and that uh, coming from an evangelical, that might sound like an implied bent toward my um, uh, LGBTQ. Uh, friends, but actually, I also mean that toward the evangelical community because it's the height, the height of uh, the height of arrogance for us with the porn addictions as as high as they are in the evangelical community for for porn addicted white evangelical men to require celibacy in such a flippant way. It's just it's. We really have to step back and say, pull the log out of our own eye. Wait a minute, you know, wait a minute. And so the sexualized reality is in the the heterosexual community, too. There was a really arresting moment in one of your sermons that I listened to, Zach, where you're preaching on the passage, the the wedding passage, right? You know, love is patient, love is kind, etc. It was a great sermon, I thought. And you're talking about how at this moment in the sermon, you talk about how Paul gives this definition of love, as you mentioned earlier in this conversation, that is, you know, the most beautiful definition of what it is to love that any human being has ever come up with. Yet earlier in his life, you say he was a religious terrorist. He was doing violence in God's name. And you say in the sermon, you know, how in the world was this person able to make that transition? And you're asking that question because you're also saying in the sermon yourself and your congregation, are we really capable of loving like this? Is the church capable of it? Is the culture capable of it? And thus far in this sermon, you've said, no, 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 we're not. So how did Paul get there? How can we get there? And then you say in a kind of a classic Protestant move, he got there because Jesus loved him. Do you think, like, like you seem to have a very clear-eyed, I wouldn't say pessimistic, but um, clear-eyed assessment of human nature, of our fallen state. So do you have then an optimism around our capacity to be turned around? Like, I guess I'm asking what your theological anthropology is or what your sort of sense of, of, um, of, of our ability to be sanctified is. Yeah. Can, can we have what happened to us, what happened to Paul? Yes. I do believe we can. Uh, recognizing what we were stating earlier, uh, all of Paul's continued flaws. He's still coveted. He's still had a thorn in his flesh. He, there's some kind of disagreement or argument he had with uh, Barnabas over John Mark. You know, uh, he, he, he grew in Christ, as did, you know, James and John, who were sons of thunder that wanted to call down fire from heaven. John ends up becoming the apostle of love, historically. Uh, that doesn't mean they were perfect, and, and, but probably what I'm getting at is maybe a, a term that uh, Francis Schaeffer used those years ago, which I think was a good term, um, substantial healing, mm. that we, we don't experience perfection in this life or perfect healing. Um, the healing we experience might even be rather small, but it would be substantial. And so sometimes I'm in, I, I try to say it this way, which is overstated and I get and I have to clarify it a lot. <laughs> but in a shorthand way, I'll say, what if Jesus isn't trying to make us good? What if Jesus is just aligning with aligning us with what is true and uh, true about 
who we are, true about who he is, true about what the nature of this life is and what our future is, you know, true about the ancient questions that we all have. And and in pursuit of that, we're, we are sanctified gradually, um, but in, incompletely. And, and I think the other thing, too, is uh, substantial healing isn't per- perfect healing, but it also means that it's, um, I don't know, disproportionate. So maybe in one, uh, one area of our lives, we have found a great deal of grace and someone might think, boy, you're a really patient person. And you think, man, I don't know how I got there other than the grace of God because I was an impatient person. And yet um, you have trouble with eating too much. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's great. So, you know? <laughs> so the disproportionate nature of it, right? It's not an across the board. I've improved morally 70% in every category. Right. That's right. And so just because we're right, we've, we've grown into a, a, a congruence with truth in one area of our life doesn't mean we have in all areas of our life. And um, that brings us back to a humble posture, I think, uh, before Jesus. In your own ministry, having slowed down, having immersed yourself and your gaze in the life of a local community, have you seen that substantial healing take place in people's lives? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I really have. I was talking about a small group leaders earlier. Um, I, I suppose they're just. But he, but here's the key: the healing, the substantial healing in people's lives. They don't look like large, famous, uh, immediate things. Uh, they look like small, mostly overlooked movements of grace in their life. And so sometimes we'll remind ourselves as elders uh, every um, at every elders meeting, I'll say, let's rehearse this. Let's remind ourselves there's a, there's a emergency room decision making, which is ER, you know, which, which values immediacy and relief. And there's a boardroom decision making, which values quantity and efficiency. And uh, we need both of those. But the thing we're trying to do as pastors uh, Jesus rarely works with immediacy, with relief, with in a quantitative, efficient way to bring healing in people's lives. And so if we remove those things, what do we have left? Well, we have presence, you know, our presence. We have prayer. Uh, we have commitment of friendship. Uh, we have his word. Uh, we have the beach uh, there in Chicago, uh, the general revelation of God revealing the goodness and beauty of his creation. You know, and, um, and so that doesn't mean that I'm suddenly going to be good, but it does mean that I, I, I can be more and more conformed or aligned or, or more proportionately congruent with what's true about the way things are. And that in itself brings a lot of sanity, even if I still ate too much today. And um, so, yeah, it's something like that. I love it. I mean, one of the things I'm learning from this conversation and from listening to your sermons and and reading your book, Zach, is the degree to which uh, a turn toward patience as a virtue has saturated your own relationship with Christ and your own approach to ministry. Um, One of the things in, in, in the book, in Imperfect Jesus, that is sort of implicit in what you're saying, but you don't well, you allude to it directly, I guess, so it's more than an illusion a couple of times, but I guess what I'm trying to say is this. One of the things that's taken for granted in your book is the notion that evangelical pastors and preachers are going to get policed doctrinally. Where does, 
for me, this sounds maybe incredibly naive, but um, from a mainline perspective, I got to ask it, like, where does that policing come from? Is that coming from the pew? Is it coming from your colleagues in ministry? Because you're in a, a pretty free church tradition. There's not a bishop who's going to show up and tell you you're um, espousing poor doctrine. So who's policing a, a, a free church evangelical? Well, um, a pres- it, we're Presbyterian. Okay. And, and so that... And, I am personally, and so that can come through Presbytery, or it can come from, but it, it's people in the pew, uh, and broadly in an evangelical way. I think you see our weakness on display, our the way we don't look, the way we don't resemble Jesus at all, and the way we talk as a as a collective on social media. Um, we we we're so hyper sensitivized to words. Uh, and I think I think it's because of the strength and weakness of who we are. You know, the strength of it, perhaps at its best, at its most humble, large-hearted, gracious, generous, Jesus-saturated, loving way, an appeal to the text of Scripture can bring uh, sane strength to human life. Uh, that same commitment to words uh, backfires on us, and uh, you know we can we can look just like the the Pharisees at their worst in the way they handle Jesus, um, and I, I so I think there's something that happens systemically, and there's something uh, that happens just in our own heart, and our own heart. The systemic is what I just said about the strength and weakness of attention to doctrinal. Uh, precision, but the then our human heart is just our desire for control. I mean, uh, you but know. I would encourage you to think too. I mean, from the yeah. other hand, and <laughs> yeah. I know I know you know this, but having spent my entire life in a non-creedal Christian tradition. Mm. It's good to have those boundaries, those doctrinal boundaries. I, I I have a friend who's a pastor out in California in the UCC, and she told me this story about a church. I don't know if it's still happening, but that you know, a Christian church that took the cross off its altar and and hung a big crystal, oh. <laughs> and and you know, we don't have the apparatus to say no. Um, but sometimes I don't know from the outside looking in, um, I can see even your critique is probably, I mean, is obviously valuable and deserving, but there's blessing in a, a, a shared set of doctrinal assumptions. Yes. And, and, um, so my critique is with, uh, from the assumption that, uh, the truth of God's word, uh, is sanity? I've used that word. It is. It it is our sanity. It is our our light. Um, it is the solid ground beneath our feet. It is the anchor. Um, he is the anchor for us, and His Word is our uh, our our access of relationship with Him. And so, that uh, generous, large-hearted, wonderful, remarkable gift um, can also be our weakness um, mm-hmm. when we get afraid. Uh, when we worry, when we, we have slippery slope uh, fears as a collective. And, and when that happens, then we're not we're just not at our best at all. Isn't that remarkable how my wife is a psychotherapist and she told me this story years ago of going to a Jungian workshop. And the guy running the workshop began by saying to everybody, all right, I want you to write down your five greatest gifts that you have as a person. So everybody is happy to do that. And they write their five 
greatest strengths down. And then he says, okay, turn the paper over and write down an instance in which each one of those gifts has hurt someone you love. And what I hear you saying is the church is the same way, right? Like, like that, that evangelical commitment to the word, the fact that it keeps us, keeps you sane, like that also can be misused. That be the most beautiful thing in the world can be handled poorly and can be used in a harmful way. And, uh, and that's, that's, a. Uh... And so I, I think it comes back again that it, it, it should humble us again, I think, to, to take great care uh, with it. And, but, with, uh, but without, you know, without shame of, of saying that, you know, Christ is, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's through the, his life, his, re- his death, his resurrection that we come to the Father. And, uh, but, and, and, but to remember, how do we say it? Uh, to remember that that description of love that Paul gave is doctrinal. <laughs> you know, that, that uh, it's not like there's doctrine and then life, and love is a part of the life, and, you know, our Christology is a part of the doctrine. But, but somehow the way Paul wrote to Titus, and, and the, when Paul said, hey, you know, Titus, uphold sound doctrine— the next thing he said was, you know, teach older men to relate this way, younger men, older women to relate this way, younger women. Like there's an, a re- relational uh, assumption to the doctrine as God's given it to us. And uh, to find our way toward that is a great hope of mine. Mm, so it has to be lived out. Yeah, an embodied, an embodied truth, I guess. Zach, as we wrap up, I have to thank you so much for being as clear and as open as you've been in this conversation it's i've i've learned from it and learned from you and uh thank you so much i've learned too matt i i'm really grateful i really am thank you so much many thanks for listening to the christian centuries preachers on preaching podcast this episode was edited by neil ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hooper and Steve Thornby. 